Hi, I'm Ellis George, uh, play Courtney Woods, and you're listening to the Five-ish Fangirls podcast. And just as we continue all the way to episode 340 of the Five-ish Fangirls podcast, and we're in a nostalgic historical learning mood. Uh, so let's flip the Billy Joel lyrics to 1954. Welcome everyone to this week's episode of the Five-ish Fangirls podcast. So glad you could join us. Let's start off like a terrific virtual table and see who's joined us this week. This is Brittany, still in Maine. This is Chrissy in Salt Lake City. This is Holly from Wisconsin. And this is Rachel in Indianapolis, Indiana. Hello, everyone. Hello. Hello. We're all here. Yay! (laughs) Yes, we are. We've got a lot of ground to cover, so we Uh need to jump right in with the news Mm -hmm. decent amount uh Uh, yeah there were some some busy beavers with the news yeah Yeah, well Mm -hmm. like like uh nintendo yeah nintendo uh had like their annual thing and then netflix had like their annual thing Mm -hmm. so that helps somewhat yeah well Uh, nintendo direct is a little more than annual but yeah well yeah so that just shows how much i pay attention uh well, <laughs> i didn't pay attention until i was on i was playing animal crossing and my sister was on the same time and she's like guess what they're doing a mario movie and i'm like they're what now not Which live like, action not a live but action in big lo- big brightly colored dumb letters not live action <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they learned a lesson on that one. Yes. Somewhere, yeah. somewhere the, bu- the ghost of Bob, Bob Hoskins. Hoskins is, yeah. Yeah, the yeah. ghost of Bob Mario. Hoskins is saying, like, good choice, <laughs> guys. Yes. Yeah. move. Yes. So, the, uh, although it, it's it's kind of an interesting take on that they're going for. So, it's, it is animated. Uh, it's the Illumination Studios. And this was announced. Same people that brought us all the minions the minions and, yes. and that sorts of thing uh but the 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 thing that is most re- intriguing to me is that uh the head of the, the head of nintendo shigeru miyamoto was the one announcing this even <laughs> though nintendo and and uh and and miyamoto-san were, were very unhappy with the 93 live action movie <laughs> which to be fair i can't blame them exactly but, yeah yeah it, just fair. reading just reading what he said with the yeah. announcement just you could just tell that there's just like so much like do not scroll and yes. just how much they're all like still banging themselves on the head for doing yes. that mm-hmm. where he's like mm-hmm. we're collaborating with C- chris melon Darny Dan Dandry, uh, Chris, and, yeah, <laughs> Illumination, yeah, a guy yeah. from Illumination, and his experienced team did not just create a character licensed film, but a new piece of entertainment which brings Super Mario Brothers to life on the screen and allows everyone to enjoy whether or not they know about the game. The production so far is constructive and going very well, and yes. both parties are learning a lot from each other. Yes. <laughs> the fact that he just 
as constructive. Like there's so many ways you could interpret what that means. Exactly. Yeah, now, now you have to... as in good or as constructive as in, in bad. Yeah. Well, they wouldn't they wouldn't be making a big deal about this if it was bad. Now, now you got to understand sure. about Nintendo. Yeah. Now, now we know how proprietary Disney is with their characters mm-hmm. and things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh-huh. Nintendo, they're in that they they are they are just as much, but they're a little more gentler about it. I want to say. Um, but but yes, they they as but I think especially since the the debacle of of the live action movie in '93, that one I mean that that is like you know fool me once shame on shame on you Bert you know fool me twice shame mm-hmm. on me. Mm-hmm. Um, so but but this is why Nintendo, this is why they're still Nintendo is because they are very protective of their of their of their characters and their prop and their and their pr- properties. But they're also not like, you know, tight fisted. I don't know. I don't know how to. I don't know how to to really describe it, other than they put the fun first. But they're also very protective of what they of what they have and what they do. Mm-hmm. So, I think this one might be okay. Um, although I'm still, I don't know. Just just in general, I'm I'm just really skeptical of a lot of things just because of yeah because it's like because it's it's uh yeah because uh chris from illumination sorry i can't pronounce his last name and miyamoto-san are producing um aaron horvath and michael jelenic who did teen titans go and teen titans go to the movies are directing and matthew (laughs) fogel who wrote the Lego Movie Two and Minions: A Rise of Gru is has written the script. No, uh, the, which the, the team... only I haven't seen any of that. I saw the first Lego Movie and Lego yeah. Batman. <laughs> so. Yeah, I'm. I'm the the fact that it's the the guys who did Teen Titans Go. I'm just like, mm, really, but. I mean, and and they do the the casting intrigues me, and I this one it like yes. it could go either way. I think because Alex has been watching a lot of Onward lately, and Chris Pratt mm-hmm. was one of the main characters in that one. Mm-hmm. And you know, the character is basically Chris Pratt. Yeah, and he's like that me. in the Lego Movie too. Like he yeah. still sounds like Chris Pratt. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, we all have this 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 image in our in our minds of you know charles martinet doing the voice of mario it's a me mario mm-hmm. but at the same time do you want to hear a two hours so or, or so movie with that voice going i mean it, it's good for a video game yeah but is it good for for a full-length movie where your main character is constantly talking about talking like that so you know it could go either way i'm not i'm not i'm not dumping on it one way or the other but i'm also not like you know doing cartwheels in the street saying it's gonna be amazing because i have no idea um yeah i mean surely it can't be any worse than the live action movie <laughs> yeah. no, 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 given, I, I, I i do there, there are some things i do like about the live action movie don't get me wrong mm-hmm. um yeah da- daisy and luigi they're adorable mm-hmm. I, yes. I really like that but yeah there's there are some parts that uh maybe one day we'll have to review it <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> just just to just to say we did um, yeah 
but uh, see if it's gotten into that it's so bad it's kind of good territory yet. <laughs> yes yes yeah like in a campy way you can yeah. still be entertained by it you gotta see if, yeah. it's, if it's gotten to that point yet because you know it's only been not quite 30 years yet so yeah, <laughs> yeah. Maybe, maybe in a couple of years if we, if we have a, a down a down week we'll be like oh hey let's review this movie because yeah it, it it has it has some it has some charm to it not mm-hmm. it, it's not perfect by all me by any stretch of the imagination Mm-mm. Yeah. but it's there, there there are some charming moments but anyway so i the mo- the thing that that mainly shocked me was that i never ever ever in a million years thought that they would do a mario movie live action animated or whatever just because of that 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 uh mm-hmm. fire not just yeah. not just the movie itself but the production surrounding it in fact right. i would suggest a defunct land but no, no it's not defunct land it is um is it video game historian it's a channel on youtube and he's video game video game historian it's in the title he did a video about and they're really great his whole channel's great it's it's um video game documentaries about you know history of video games and he did one on the super mario movie and just all of the train wreck behind the scenes it's like wow no wonder this movie didn't do well um mm-hmm. maybe i'll dump that well, I mean, I'll, I'll drop that in our uh, show notes, and so just just out of curiosity, because there's a there's yeah, uh, it there there is some there there are some there are some gems in there, and not in a good way. Or no, it's gaming historian. That's what he's called. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I'll put this in our show notes here in a moment. Um, just you know. Just for fun, yeah. check it out. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, yes, uh, Super Mario movie starring Chris Pratt and a bunch of other people that. Oh, uh, although, yeah, I say other Keegan, than Keegan Michael Kay and Jack Black. Jack Black mm-hmm. as Bowser is like okay. I got. That I got to be good. Yeah, I, I, I can totally see that. Yeah, Keegan Michael Key is Toad though. I want to see this first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. So, I mean, and I, I'm not, all I have is a cast list and the fact that they're doing this, I don't, I haven't seen any animation. I haven't heard mm-hmm. anyone do any voices, nothing. So I have nothing to base this on. So I'm not going to be like, oh, this is going to suck. I'm just going to say yeah. it's going to be a thing. So mm-hmm. yeah. well, anyway. we'll find out Christmas next year. Yes. <laughs> So, December twenty first, twenty twenty two. Here we go. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't resist. Woohoo! Uh, We've been watching a lot of Mario videos. Yeah. So, turning to TV, um, we got a which. You, I don't know who who shared this first the Orville season three and you're like next year and I'm like oh, next year it made it sound like it's like you know like a year forever it's next away. March it's like less than <laughs> six October months away. Is, this, is at the end of this week so mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. you <laughs> will live yes I know I thought it was like what are you saying next September oh no it's in March I'm like oh yeah. that's that's not too bad yeah 
But yes, we're finally getting the long-awaited season three of the Orville, uh, exclusively on Hulu. Next, yes. right? Which you know, I I can understand the, the the gap because they were you mm-hmm. know making the move to Hulu. Fox couldn't find a time slot for them, and then and then the the, the virus uh, the virus that shall not be named mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. shut everything down. Everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Better late than never. Yeah. So it is, it is happening. It is not, you know, the, the delay is not their fault. Nope. So, but I am looking forward to more Orville. Yes. yes. Still, it's, it's felt like I haven't had a whole lot to really get excited about as far as TV is, is concerned. Well, mm-hmm. and there's just not a lot of, well, I say this because I I don't watch a lot of regular TV anyway. I know there are comedies out there, but there aren't a whole lot of comedies out there that I like. Yeah, Yeah. ever since Jared and I, ever since Jared and I got married, I my I've noticed that my my taste in in comedy has has changed quite a bit and it's mostly due to 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 jared's influence because he is extremely picky about Mm -hmm. comedies and even Mm -hmm. now like some of the some of the the, some of the comedies that i have on dvd that i loved when i was like in high school and college i'm just like oh gosh and maybe maybe i'm just getting old i don't know but (laughs) probably a combination of both i imagine Mm -hmm. oh i'm sure i'm sure i think about some of these things i'm like ew i liked that (laughs) <laughs> oh yeah like boy i was young and dumb <laughs> <laughs> yeah anyway so. so yeah orville's coming back in less than six months so <laughs> that makes us happy mm-hmm. i'm glad there's actually a date because we've been in like not just waiting for it to come back we've been waiting for like a date for so yes. long you know that we actually have a date we can actually put something on the calendar Yep. In, in pencil. In pencil, <laughs> yeah. In pencil. <laughs> yes. Everything is still done in pencil. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No Sharpies quite yet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, Orville uh, next March. Now, further into 2022. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We don't have a date. All we have is a month, November of 2022. But mm-hmm. they're keeping with the trend because they did this in between seasons two and three. Um, so they're doing it again between seasons four and five. They are in production, though. So that's why it's going to take mm-hmm. so long because they are currently filming. Um, the Crown season five is right now scheduled to be released November of next year. We got a nice little video of Imelda Staunton sitting at the queen's mm-hmm. desk yeah look you know not dressed as the queen just dresses herself but still you know she's very cute sitting behind the yes you know, her majesty's desk on set and trying to be like these are shoes to fill <laughs> <laughs> in a number of ways i mean playing somebody so steeped in history who's still alive Mm -hmm. and she's playing Mm -hmm. her majesty the closest to the age she is now granted we're still going to be in the mid 90s in season five but still you know yeah um we're getting grandma (laughs) or great grandma you know her majesty yeah um but then you know to have the two ladies that 
played the same role before her, you know, with Olivia Coleman and Claire Foy. So, yeah, I don't blame her if she's a little nervous. <laughs> but I think she will I, do a good job. Yes, I I think I say this every time we bring her up, and it is in no way a, a, a dig against her. I still see her as Umbridge. Oh, I know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I know, and I'm like that I just means that... she did a really good job. Sometimes. I know, as yeah. being, yes. being very disgustingly evil. Like, yes, yeah. Anyway, yeah, I've I've been seeing I've been seeing a post going around about you know why Umbridge is so much scarier than Voldemort, and it's because you know an Umbridge. You might not know. You probably don't know a Voldemort, but you know an Umbridge mm-hmm. in real life. Yep, mm-hmm. yep, yep. <laughs> But yeah, so yeah. Crown season five, that one actually is next year, more than yes. a year away, but yep. it is on its way. Yep. Um, and then we got kind of somewhat related because we've got someone who was in the Crown and has now moved on to <laughs> another production. Uh, mm-hmm. But we got our first look at the live action Sandman adaptation. I can't wait. And I need to get caught up on the Audible stuff. Yes, because part two is now out. Yes. On Audible. So, Mm -hmm. which after listening to the first one, you know, part one, season one, whatever the however Audible does that. Mm -hmm. uh, And knowing now what is going to be adapted into live action i'm like this is gonna be so gruesome <laughs> like it's like it's like you know game of thrones is like blood gut sex and sandman mm-hmm. comes along like hold my beer <laughs> right it's yeah. like that's cute yes mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> yeah sandman has nothing on sandman's got more on more than supernatural does for the gore yeah <laughs> yeah this is it, but at the same time, I'm so excited. To it. Me too. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. In the meantime, I can listen to season two, part two, whatever the hell mm-hmm. it's called. Uh, yeah. Act of, two. Act two. <laughs> yeah. That that thing. That thing. Yeah, that it's thing. A thing. Yeah. It's a Which thing. is so good, all in it itself. Mm-hmm. It's a really good adaptation, and the actors that they have for the different parts is just so entertaining and the knowing who's coming whose voice i'll get to hear in in act two mm-hmm. <laughs> oh. <But>, yeah <laughs> i am down so down so mm-hmm. uh so that's exciting yes. um and then Last up, exciting. Yeah, <laughs> last yes. last up in television related news. And if you had somehow had this on your 2021 bingo card, can I have a, a lottery ticket? Can I have a winning lottery ticket? <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say. <laughs> I know Jared. Jared sent me a link to this. I had to go to work that day before him, and he's like, "Have you seen this?" And I'm like, "Is this real?" Even Chauncey <laughs> knew about it. Because I was looking, I was, was like, all is like, this some sort of April Fool's joke? Are we going to get rickrolled? Because I had just seen a post, somebody posting a picture, like, he's back home, and somebody did a joke that um, Richard Croydon 
the lodger was going to be the new showrunner. I'm just like, okay, I'm not going to believe this mm-hmm. RTD until I see an official post from like BBC or yeah, the that's main exactly who it came Doctor from. Who website. Yeah, that's, you know? that's the link that Jared <laughs> sent me. It was doctorwho.tv and I was like, well, I guess you can't get any more, much more official than that. Well, and even on TV, I missed it, but he like tweeted something like the day before. Yeah. <laughs> Just teasing, like, hey, I'm going to have an announcement tomorrow. So, but yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, the uh, announcement. This is T. Davies, the man who brought back Doctor Who back in 2005. For the twentieth anniversary, yeah. <laughs> is coming back as showrunner, and not just not just RTD. It's also going to be Julie Gardner and Jane Tranter, Tranter. Yes. under the umbrella of Bad Wolf Studios, which they started. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, you you know, you know the name Bad Wolf if you're a Doctor Who fan. Yes. Uh, yep. So I would be probably pulling out the first four series and maybe doing a rewatch between now and then just to see what they might pull. Yes. And I mean, the the internet being the internet is running (laughs) rampant with, because, you know, there was for a long time, RTD said now that he was done. He he, Mm -hmm. did his Doctor Who, he's on to other things. And there was some, some family things going on and, that he, had, right. that he had to take care of and stuff like that and it's like you know we just kind of figured yeah you know he, he had a good run as, as showrunner he did a great job with those first four seasons plus the specials and and that's you know that's it mm-hmm. and now he's back after uh, right right now uh and this is like okay how do i take this mm-hmm. <laughs> um because you know the the press release it's full of you know you know pr jargon and a bunch of mm-hmm. you know stuff like oh you know he's just a viewer now he, he's still just a viewer now and chris chibnall is his hero and yeah but then this. he posted like the day after it was announced he's like with him with like a dalek and he's like day one yes like did, it you just have that in your garden at your house and you're like okay i'm gonna get get some arrangement here okay time uh-huh. to go right yeah yes. uh, hey john can i borrow that uh dalek of yours that you have at your house yeah, <laughs> yeah. so it's like it's interesting it's it's the guy who uh basically well I mean, it, we're we're in two very different scenarios, or you know, mm-hmm. we're in a completely different scenario than in two thousand five. Because right. two thousand five, Doctor Who was like dead and dusted, and no one ever, no one even cared. Mm-hmm. And now it's like it's been around for a while. It's kind of gone through some growing rocky, pains, <laughs> so, some some rocky times, shall we say? Yeah. Uh, which which you know we've kind of we've kind of alluded to it, it, at certain points. So, you know, why are you bringing back the guy, one, you know, the guy who ostensibly people by and large agree he's he's really good. I mean, you know, he's he's their he's one of their favorites. I mean, people will disagree on on Moffat's era. You know, there's that's neither here nor there. But uh-huh. RTD, they're all like, oh, he was the best. He's the greatest. He's this. And I'm like, hmm. hmm. Or is this just, you know, he he's he said, I want to I want to do I want to be involved in the 60th anniversary. <laughs> 
right. is is that what this is and we may never know we may speculate till the cows come home mm-hmm. all we know is he's coming back and he's gonna run run the thing again yes. and... and for those fickle fans don't complain when he comes back <laughs> Please, but you're probably oh, going still to gonna anyway. be complaints. Yes. Oh, there, there there's, always... gonna be, there's gonna be complaints because uh, there's gonna be the people yeah. that are gonna want the show to go back to the way it was in 2005, which you know, there's some it's fantastic it's... who, but mm-hmm. if like you watch Christopher Eccleston season, like it, it does is... it. It, it doesn't even... hold a candle to what they're able to accomplish now. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, there's there's stuff you watch that first season, and even just the changes, you know, not including the doctor, but even the, like, just uh-huh. like the production values, the storytelling. There's uh-huh. a huge jump in in style and quality and, yeah. and writing, uh-huh. um, and that's and that's all under RTD still. So right. you know, it is, and this is okay. So he left in two thousand nine. This is well. By the time he he takes over, it'll be twenty twenty three, I believe. Mm-hmm. By the time so we start seeing what, yeah. By the time we start seeing, yeah. Um, so that'll be okay. I can math. Fourteen years. Mm-hmm. Holy crap! Yes. Yeah. Uh. So yeah, it's gonna be very different. Um. Mm-hmm. I mean, who knows? Who honestly knows? And with some of the uh, baggage that he's going to have to deal with like like in 2005 he was starting from scratch he right. was they were yep. they didn't have the time war they didn't have you know the extra you know extra regenerations they didn't have gallifrey saved and gallifrey bombed again and this 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 timeless child stuff mm-hmm. well i mean the, the time war thing. i mean he he's the one who well, yeah, he created he, the time war. But what I'm saying is, Uh-oh. like, they had the time war, the 50th anniversary saved oh, yeah. Gallifrey from the time war. Yeah. And then the master went crackers and, yeah, and did well, it again. The, and... the master was crackers during his run, too, with, with, uh, True. Yes. with uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I don't know. I, I'm praying oh, for the Ronnie optimistic? to. <laughs> I'm cautiously optimistic. I kind of hope the Ronnie is gonna like come back and be like, "Guess mm-hmm. what? The timeless you children. Too. Yeah, that was all a dream. I was just being a jerk yeah. again." <laughs> Ooh, the, the Ronnie and Missy. Ooh, please, yes, please, please. please, please. <laughs> and, and can we get Donna Noble back, please? Can somebody fix do a friendly red reset button, please? Yeah, I mean, I mean, this is the thing. I don't is we want have... a big reset button. Well, oh, oh, tiny, <laughs> tiny. I don't okay, want any tiny. reset. I don't want any reset. <laughs> That's the thing is the, the groundwork has been laid and I'm fully confident in RTD to be mm. able to take what Chimnall did and even Moffat before him mm. and turn it into some and use it into something that's gonna you well, know, keep the story re- going slight reset in rtds with donna that's all i'm asking no, donna's happy <laughs> even if yeah, she even true. if she doesn't remember donna's happy she's married i just want her back i just want, want a return <laughs> to to respecting the lore mm-hmm. that's what i want and I mean, I, this is why I'm like, I don't think I'm going to get it because our, you know, we're, we're too, we're, you know, you, 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 we're too far down that rabbit hole, but 
you know, you know, unseating William Hartnell as the first doctor just didn't didn't sit well with me. And I, I, I don't know. I was like, why, why, why would you do that? You know, of all the things you could have done, you, you, you just made him just one of the, one of the, one of the extra, one of the extra regenerations and he's nothing special. And he still could be though. I don't want to get just into like that with one. The, I would say just like with the war doctor. Do, do you consider him the doctor or is he the war doctor? Yeah. He's, he's the war doctor. He's, he's, he should have been the ninth doctor, but because of reasons. Right. Yeah. And then, Which, hand, you know, and then handy, you know, speaking of right. Donna, you know, that, yeah, threw, that threw off the regeneration <laughs> count too. So, yes. you know, again, there, there although are, a lot of that, you know, a lot of that just, it, it wasn't, it didn't feel like that. None of that felt like a slap in the face quite frankly that's that's where i'm going that's what i'm that's where i'm coming from mm. is the the timeless child thing felt like a, a, just a slap in the face to the fans to the lore to the history of it and i mean it's not like you know i you know oh you dissed my religion or something like that but it just feels like it it just, it just felt like well you better love this or not or 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 else and if you don't like it, you know, it, it was very much, um, uh, you know, the sixth doctor saying, I'm the doctor, whether you like it or not, after he's just been a real dick to Perry and everybody throughout the entire four episodes of The Twin Dilemma. That's where I'm, that's where, that's where I'm coming from. And I mean, I know I, I may, I may very well be in the minority here. Uh, I just... That's just what it feels like, and maybe I'm—I don't know—but it's 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 kind of left a sour taste in in my in my soul. Hmm. Well, we'll just have to wait and see. Yes, we will. Yes, we will. So we'll see what happens. I mean, Doctor Who's always been divisive with people, Mm. though. I mean, the looks I get when people find out that the Six Doctor, speaking of the Six Doctor, the Six Doctor is my favorite. Yeah. Yeah, they're like really that dummy with the weird, you know, the outrageous costume. The one who's a jackass who, you know, tried to strangle yeah. his companion. I'm like, yeah, he's my absolute favorite. I love it. So, yeah. <laughs> Have you checked out Big Finish? Yeah, yeah. Even then, he could still be a jackass. Oh, uh, true. <laughs> but it's less, it's less of a jackass and more of a, and more of a. I'm being, I'm being curmudgeonly, but with a nod and a wink. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Spe- speaking mis- speaking of William Hartnell, yeah. with a mischievous <laughs> twinkle in the eye while doing it. Yeah. Yes, yes. So you know what, and you know what, maybe time time will bear out my opinion, and maybe I will change my 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 outlook. I reserve my right to do that. I yep. just that's whoop. fair. Yeah, I I just you know when they did it, I was like, seriously, really. But anyway. So we'll see what happens. Yeah. As with it, this, at this point, it's just speculation anyway. So yeah, I mean, they yeah. haven't even. I, I, I mean, he's probably written down some ideas and maybe started on a few scripts, but they, they haven't even, you know, started filming. They don't yeah, even for know his the, run. Yeah, for his like, run. They don't, yeah. I mean, we they're don't still working on Jody finishing up Jody's. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, they're gonna, mm-hmm. they're gonna. I mean, we don't even know who the next doctor is going to be. So, I mean, people are speculating madly about that. So, yeah, but they, yeah. which they do every time. 
Yeah, yeah I know. I'm staying out of it this time, just because. Yeah. Yep. We could play yeah. armchair showrunner all we want, but at the yes. end of the day, it's not our it's not our gig. It's not as our, much as much as we would like to volunteers tribute. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and quick side tangent, uh speaking of Doctor Who, less than a week for the book poll. Yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, Housekeeping. Please, please make sure you go and vote. There is only one vote so far. So oh. <laughs> <make> your selection. <laughs> friendly reminder <laughs> all righty there you go good reminder yes yep as i was saying october's this week <laughs> yes yes exactly this friday yes and you blink it'll be thanksgiving get your sh- get your christmas shopping in happy yeah. new year y'all yeah really <laughs> i actually saw <laughs> christmas decorations in walmart the other day uh, yeah. uh, that's yeah about right yep. the store up here has been having christmas decorations since last month oh god one of the one of the craft stores stopped in past week christmas decorations already at 40 percent off like uh, craft hey. stores get ready early yeah they just, they, they just do like like there's there's yeah. christmas stuff in there in they're the their July. own like dimension in time yeah. So. yeah because because all those all those really the, those those martha martha stewart acolytes they they get ready year round practically uh-huh. yeah <laughs> which i'm like man i wish i had your your time and energy because uh-huh. there's stuff i'd like to try uh-huh. well speaking of halloween uh real quick <laughs> i wanted to mention uh if you go to our youtube channel i just posted a sneak peek of a well new to me <laughs> they've been around for a while um but uh new to me haunted attraction uh down in louisville kentucky which you know not necessarily convenient for everybody it just happens mm-hmm. to be a where i live on the south side of indianapolis it's just it's just turn your face south and just go until you hit kentucky um and it's right <laughs> there so <laughs> um but i so had received skipping a jump <laughs> yeah i had received a an email um like a month ago something like that um inviting me to come down and check out their thing at a media checkout you know thing um i don't know what proper press terms are i just you know people invite me to things and i'm like okay uh (laughs) if it's in my schedule i'll be there with bells on uh so um but it's called the uh american horrorplex um and uh if you know anything about me you will know that when it comes to Halloween, I love myself some free candy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as much as the next person. And, um, you know, obviously Chauncey and I enjoy scaring the trick-or-treaters, mm-hmm. doing the scaring. I don't like being scared. Mm-hmm. I, do the children's, I do the children's museum haunted house sometimes. And sometimes that scares me. So... <laughs> So when I get an invite to something called the American Horrorplex, 
<laughs> first instinct was just be like delete <laughs> can, can i take a big sofa with me and hide behind it for yeah protection? really well in this case i took my husband <laughs> I, I took a sasquatch so uh, sometimes sometimes that's a good option as well yeah yep. so uh yeah my first instinct was to be like delete but then i was like you know what why the hell not yeah it, it'll be something different to do you know especially right now because <laughs> your options mm -hmm. are limited um you know for me convention season is over uh so i was like why the heck not so uh i responded and i'm like yeah i'll be there and you know i'm bringing my husband um so then we went um that we went uh the media thing was this this past friday night um and uh full disclosure they gave us passes for free uh to to go they gave us admission to the let us go through the haunted house the main haunted house twice um gave us admission to do one of the escape rooms which we beat literally at the last second uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so um the uh bug museum which i did not do chauncey did um and um the they have some little carnival games and stuff too it gave us a uh, each a, a chance to play one of the carnival games and win a prize um and for the media people had pizza but we went out to eat before then so um but anyway uh so yeah and, and we the for the haunted house we got to skip the line uh we got to go to the front of the line uh didn't have to wait with all the other plebeians uh, <laughs> uh so yeah so full disclosure that was all free uh, we, we we did have to pay to go there, drive there, and we paid for our own dinner that we had beforehand. But so, um, but uh, honestly, I really enjoyed it. Uh, you know, I still jumped. Yeah, I still screamed. Although there was one time where, like, you know, something happened, I went ah, and even to myself, I'm like, that was not a convincing scream at all. <laughs> <laughs> oh, kind of the Dean Winchester scene, the cat that popped out of the locker. Or yeah, no, because that was more genuine. <laughs> this was more like, this was more like, uh, uh, oh, crap, um, in Clue, um, uh -huh. when Mrs. White, uh, at one point something happens and everybody else is screaming, and she's just like, ah, you know. Ah. Okay, one of the <laughs> yes, it, it's a it's a courtesy scream like yes. oh you tried you tried to scare me ah oh no help police yeah exactly <laughs> Willy Wonka help police murder uh, <laughs> somewhere in between those two um, so no it was it was still genuinely you know had had moments uh, you know where you know people jump out and stuff. Um, but the they definitely try to focus more on the storytelling 
and even Ooh. we actually talked to the owner um, and you can I interviewed him Chauncey and I did and you can that interviews in the video and even Chauncey's like yeah you know a lot of places they focus on like hell on earth is the words Chauncey used and <laughs> the, the, the owner uh, Travis he was like yeah you know that's not what we want to do we want to be entertaining we don't want your scared money we want your entertainment money Nice. And, that's, and that's exactly cool. what they've done so you that's know awesome. I, I really oh, yeah. genuinely enjoyed going through it twice um and you know it, it was bright enough that like you could see like the props and some of the details so you could actually enjoy that part that goes with the storytelling too because there's a whole story that goes with it Wow. Um, that I don't want to necessarily spoil and there's well, there's the, not the, a whole lot of haunted house footage because they didn't want me you know or any of the media people spoiling spoiling right. it so you can but get an fact idea that sense. the fact yeah. that there was an actual story with it is cool because most yeah. haunted houses it's like here just rev up the chainsaw and scare the crap out of everybody yeah yeah no like this this is like the when they they mailed the media passes to us they sent it in an envelope that's all decorated for the theme and there's like other theme stuff that came in the envelope too. Uh, so I was very confused when I opened my mailbox and I saw this envelope that looked like it had been like ran over by you know, a tank <laughs> or something. I'm like, what the hell is this? And then I saw who it was from and I'm like, oh, okay. I see what we're doing here. This is a good sign. <laughs> nice. Um, so, but yeah, if you can get to the Louisville area, um, it's the American Horrorplex, um, right near the river, I think, ish. Um, so going to it, you kind of feel like you've just entered a horror film. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> going there, uh, because obviously they needed a location that's big enough, so it's not going to be in the middle of like you know downtown louisville or in someone's neighborhood where you know people are trying to sleep and stuff uh so it's in a bit more industrial area and after dark a little creepy but no and everyone who worked there um you know that wasn't supposed to be scaring anybody they were super nice um you know uh the, the house itself is like really long like it's probably a good 10 15 minutes to walk through this thing um, so, um, and like I said, I didn't do the bug bus, so Chauncey showed me some of the pictures that he took in there. No, thank you. Uh, <laughs> there are two escape rooms. Uh, one is like a, like horror cabin in the woods type of thing. And the other is like this weird post-apocalyptic steampunk casino thing. And that's the one that we did. That was really cool. Ooh. So, um, yeah. So yeah, if you can get to Louisville during the haunt season i mean they're already open they've already the we, they've been open already for like a week uh, so they got started like last weekend how, um, how long do they go uh, until halloween oh okay well, there you go you got yeah. to halloween folks yeah. road trip time yes <laughs> that's what i say i actually looked up to see how far it is away from me it's like it almost might be a bit far I mean, it's an hour and a half for me, so. Yeah, it's nine and a half hours from where I live. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it'd, it'd require quite the trip for me, but yep. 
if you're in the area, sounds like it'll be a good time. Yeah. Yep. And you can live slightly, like, like I said, slightly vicariously through my video, but again, not going to spoil anything. So, but it gives you an idea. Mm-hmm. Little teaser. Yep. So there's that. Um, so let's move on to feedback. We got some feedback from Shalane. Um, and uh, all about the Princess Diaries. She was very excited that we did that last <laughs> week. <laughs> so um, she says she watched it in celebration of the of its uh, the first movie had its 20th anniversary. Um, I actually watched it not long after I got Disney Plus. That was like one of the first things I watched on Disney Plus because like, hey, I can watch this now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but then I didn't watch the sequel until right before we did the podcast. <laughs> so <laughs> I had a big enough gap there between watching one and two. Um, <laughs> Um, she says that she didn't know that the Princess Diaries was based on a book. She thought it was an original story made up by Disney and Gary Marshall. It might as well have been as if you mm -hmm. listen to our yes. conversation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah it's, Especially the second one. <laughs> yeah. 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 They, they took some creative license, more like inspired by, but that's yes. us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um. And then, yeah, she talks about the how Princess Diaries is similar to Pretty Woman and other stories like My Fair Lady, where you take an ordinary girl, gets a makeover, becomes a different woman, uh -huh. gets to wear pretty clothes. I mean, even yeah. Anne Hathaway, she does it again in The Devil Wars Prada. <laughs> uh <-huh>. Yeah. <laughs> Sensing a scene. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. Um, uh, she also says that she thought Mia was played by a different actress, but yeah, it was Anne Hathaway, which, yeah, Anne Hathaway, she's one of those actresses that she, there's other actresses that kind of look like her. So, mm -hmm. like, is that Anne it's Hathaway? Like her, is it's that... Anne Hathaway, Kira Knightley, and Natalie Portman. Yes. Yeah, those three are kind of almost interchangeable, except I think Anne Hathaway is the funniest of the three of them. So yeah, mm -hmm. well, and like you know, Kira Knightley was Natalie Portman's decoy in in Phantom Star Menace. Wars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. When literally two of them, one can play the decoy for the other. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um. She also says she loves the the cat, Fat Louie. Everybody loves Fat Louie. Loves Fat Louie, yeah. Um, <laughs> Fat Louie. And she also loves in the first movie when the Baron and Baroness get all upset that they're not going to get the crown and he's, the Baron steals the vase. <laughs> <laughs> and then the secretary like brings it back yeah. Yeah. a minute later. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then she also loves uh, when uh, Mia hits Josh with the baseball. <laughs> <laughs> Glad you enjoyed our episode on the Princess Diaries, Shalane, yeah. for the feedback. All right, folks, ready for history lesson? <laughs> Get your notebooks out. Yeah. Back in time. Yeah. 
So once again, there will be links in the show notes. There's going to be quite a bit. <laughs> um, and uh, again, usual disclaimers uh, involved because uh, because Billy Joel really did not, um, you know, pull any punches when deciding, you know, picking historical events. So we've got politics, we've got death, we've got war. It's not all. It's not all fun and games. Uh, thankfully, we get to end on a high note. Yeah, I was gonna say mm-hmm. the last one's pretty good. Yeah, I even like. I even like went in one, and two, like, was there three, a controversy with this four, one? Four, five. Yeah, we've got six topics, mm-hmm. and I would say three of them are fairly harmless. Yeah, but the other three definitely are very politics. Yeah, and all the nasty stuff that goes with that. So mm-hmm. war and that sort of thing. So just know this isn't necessarily going to be the most pleasant history oh, well, lesson, yeah. but this is oh, how yeah. we learn, kids. Yes. yes. So learn from history, doomed to repeat it, etc. Exactly. Yes. I got that reference. Which, yes, <laughs> which we already covered. <laughs> <laughs> All the way back in 1951. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> we are now in 1954. Mm-hmm. Uh, spoiler alert. Mm-hmm. Old standard <laughs> is going to get to uh, Lawrence of Arabia before <laughs> doing this one. The, so. thing, the thing that started this started us down this rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, though, two of the other two, yeah, two of the other movies that are coming up, we've already done a golden. <laughs> <laughs> well you should link to them yes, yes. i will when we get to them yes. <laughs> see reference this episode of gold standard and this episode please and thank you yes exactly mm-hmm. <laughs> oh my we take, we take care of our friends around here yeah yes we do <laughs> oh my so starting off 1954 roy con roy con uh, who we're sticking, we're still in the red scare, uh, mm. at this point, so McCarthyism and all that. Um, although kind of getting to the end of it. So, yeah. Roy Khan was, oh, I, a, don't, I don't know how much of a scare it really was given yeah. some of the things that have come out since then, but yeah, again, um, okay, so Roy Khan was an American lawyer who is mostly known for his role as uh, Senator Joseph McCarthy's chief counsel during the Army McCarthy hearings in 1954, which is is what we're going to talk about here in a moment, um, where he assisted McCarthy's investigations of suspected communists. Mm -hmm. So uh, Roy was born to a Jewish family in the Bronx. He was the only child. Um, His great uncle was Joshua Lionel Cohen, the founder and owner of Lionel Corporation, the manufacturer of toy trains, mm-hmm. which actually Roy partially became owner and in charge of after his great uncle died and ran the company into the ground. Of course. Yes. <laughs> Good job, dude. That's not, why he, that's not why he's in here, though, but that tells mm-hmm. you something about him. Uh, mm-hmm. So he uh, had one job, and that's a good. <laughs> exactly. So he attended uh, Horace Mann School, and then the Fieldston School, and then completed his studies at Columbia College in 1946. 
um, then graduated from Columbia Law School. Um, and but he when he graduated law school, he was only 20. So he had to wait until after his 21st birthday to be admitted to the bar. Oh, there you go. Because apparently mm -hmm. that's a thing. Um, but uh, not to, even once he got admitted to the bar, apparently he did not want to wait or have to do a whole lot of work to find a job. So he used his family connections to obtain a position in the office of the United States Attorney Attorney. Irving Saypool in Manhattan the day he was admitted. Huh. And that, that is that is the thing about politics. It is not about what you know or what your talents are. It is what connections do you have and yeah, who well can, his, his dad was a judge. I was so. gonna say what what favors can daddy call in for you? Yes. And his, how much daddy money passed his hands. So yeah. <laughs> so he had a few Yeah, so if you're if you're ever complaining about, you know, this elected official or that person in government, just remember, they're not there on their merits. They're there because they know somebody or mm -hmm. they have blackmail pictures. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. Yep. Um, so one I of told, his... I told you this is going to be useful information. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so one of his first cases was the Smith Act trials of Communist Party leaders. Um <laughs> And in 1948, he became a board member of the American Jewish League Against Communism. As, of course you do. Uh, so while... Given, given, given what communists had been doing to, to Jewish people, even before the Nazis started in on them, it makes sense. <laughs> especially, especially in Eastern Europe. Yeah. So while working for uh, Attorney Saypool... Um, Cohen helped re secure convictions in a number of well-publicized trials of accused Soviet operatives. Um, this included the persecution of 11 members of the American Communist Party for preaching the violent overthrow of the U.S. government. Here's a man that everybody is going to enjoy meeting. He's Roy M. Cohn, who was confidential assistant to the United States Attorney General in this area, Irving H. Staple. And of course, they've been very busy prosecuting the communists and communist party hi roy hi jack uh i'm telling people out there how very busy you have been and uh, on your way sort of to a semi-rest as it were after prosecuting the uh, various red echelons in this country well the job isn't quite over yet and i think the best talking of that is i have a suitcase full of marxist leninist stalinist literature with me you know, you've been, uh, uh, you go way back, actually, you're a very young fellow, but at the same time, I know you go way back because I think you were in on the Remington deal. I tried part uh, of that, yeah. Yeah, this Dashiell Hammett business, and of course, all the various uh, Communist Party uh, members who are being prosecuted at the moment. Uh, what can you tell us, Roy, that uh, we might not know from uh, general newspaper coverage of the workings of the party in this country? What can we watch for as individual citizens? Well, of course, the communist. one thing we have to understand at the outset is that the Communist Party is not a political party. It's a criminal conspiracy. Its object is, as has been established by the verdict of a jury, the overthrow of the government of the United States by force and violence as soon as the right time arrives. In the meantime, plans are being made. That day comes, and the Communist Party's most important work is that of espionage in behalf of the Soviet Union which means that it infiltrates our government, defense plans, every important place, 
possible in order to steal information from us and give it to the Soviet Union. That has been established by the verdict of some juries in this district during this year. Um, and um, he also played a prominent role, again, if you go back and listen to one of our previous episodes, in mm -hmm. the 1951 espionage trial of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. Mm -hmm. Cohn's direct examination of Ethel's brother, David Greengrass, who, remember, threw his sister and brother-in-law under the proverbial bus, an almost literal bus, except they were electrocuted, but still, mm -hmm. threw them under the bus and then onto the electric chair. Um, it was Cohn's examination of Mr. Greengrass that helped produce that testimony that was central to the Rosenberg's conviction and subsequent execution, which, when we discussed the Rosenberg's, again, Back in the episode about 1951, we learned way after the fact that Mr. Greengrass was a big old fat liar and was uh -huh. only trying to save his own butt mm -hmm. and his wife's. Yeah. That being said, at the time, Cohn was very happy about what he did uh, and took great pride in the Rosenberg verdict and claimed to have played an even greater part than his public role. He said in his autobiography that his own influence had led to both Chief Prosecutor Sapol, imagine that, his boss was Chief Prosecutor, and Judge uh -huh. Irving Kaufman being appointed to the case. Kahn further said that Kaufman imposed the death penalty based on his personal recommendation. Classy. Wow. Yep. And he was 24 at the time. Yes. As, they, as they said at the time, better dead than red. Yeah, exactly. Oh. So, and as we learned, the Rosenberg trial was kind of a big deal. Um, mm -hmm. So being involved in that got Cohn a lot of attention, including the attention of J. Edgar Hoover, happened to be head of the FBI at the time who recommended him to Joseph McCarthy. <laughs> we have also talked about in a previous episode. Yeah. <laughs> so McCarthy hired Cohn as his chief counsel, choosing him over a young Robert F. Kennedy. I think Kennedy dodged a bullet there, no pun intended. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah they, they, had, they had enough problems with so? the mob as it was. Kennedy's <laughs> did. Yeah. yeah. So Cohn assisted McCarthy's work for the Senate Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations, um, becoming well known for his aggressive questioning of suspected communists. Uh, Cohn preferred not to hold hearings in open forums, which went well with McCarthy's preference for holding quote unquote executive sessions and quote off the record sessions away from the Capitol to minimize public scrutiny and to question uh -huh. witnesses with relative impunity. Yeah. Question you can only see the faces I'm making. Marks. Yes. Cohen was pretty much given free reign in, to pursue pretty much any investigation and McCarthy just joined in for the more publicized sessions being the attention horde that he was. Yeah. Uh, so in the process of all this, um, I guess to help share the workload, um, Cohn ended up inviting an associate of his, a, a David Shine, if I'm going to guess that's how you pronounce that, um, an anti-communist propagandist to join McCarthy's staff as a consultant. 
Um, however, Shine was drafted into the army in 1953, and Cone apparently did not like this at all. Why? Well, we'll get into that in a little bit. Um, <laughs> there's speculation. <laughs> all mm -hmm. we know is Cone um, did everything that he could to procure uh, special treatment for his good friend, Mr. Shine, um, including contacting uh, military officials all the way from the Secretary of the Army down to Shine's company commander and demanded that Shine be given things like light duties, extra leave, and exemption from an overseas assignment. At one point, Cohn is reported to have threatened to, quote, wreck the army if his demands were not met. And I will have in the show notes a link to a Time article from 1954 that has that exact quote in there. <laughs> so this is not hyperbole. This is exactly what he said. Um, so uh, Cone's messing, you know, uh, messing around with that, along with um, McCarthy's continuing claims that there were communists in the Defense Department among other places, led to the army essentially uh, bringing Cone and McCarthy to necessarily trial. It was a hearing, so they're known as the Army McCarthy hearings of 1954, uh, during which the army charged Cone and McCarthy with, the, I guess they were charged, with using improper pressure on Shine's behalf. Um, but then they countered the Cone and McCarthy countercharged that the army was holding Shine, quote, hostage in an attempt to squelch the investigations into communists in the army. So, uh, so uh, the hearings mostly found Cone to blame more than McCarthy because he was the one calling up, like, the, you know, the secretary general of the army and saying, you know, how dare you make my friend scrub the latrine with a toothbrush? Yeah. <laughs> or whatever. <clears throat> How dare you make him march 20 miles? He should only have to march 20 feet. Um, the, the whole thing just led to McCarthy's downfall, which he was kind of on his way there by the mid-50s anyway. Um, so not long after that, Cone resigned from McCarthy's staff and went on to private practice um, where he had a 30 year career as an attorney in New York, New York City. Um, and some of his, it included uh, clients like the mob. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and the, uh, yeah, mafia figures, uh, Tony Salerno, Carmine Gallant, 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 Gallante, John Gotti, uh, you know, <laughs> the U New York Yankees club owner, George Steinbrenner, uh, the owners of Studio 54. Oh, oh I boy. Say, I was going to say Steinbrenner, speaking of the mob. <coughs> I mean, I didn't say that. <laughs> I can neither confirm nor deny, but it is the owner of the Yankees. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, oh, so even though he went into private practice, that did not stop him from getting into trouble. Um, he was he was put under several federal investigations during the 70s and 80s. Um, he was officially charged three separate times with professional misconduct, including perjury and witness tampering, 
Um, and he was accused in New York of a financial improprieties related to city contracts and in private investments. Now those charges he was acquitted on. <laughs> Having ties to the mob probably helped. Yeah. <laughs> That's usually how those things go. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, Friends in high places. Yeah. <laughs> Even if they are low lives. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, but um, in 1986, he uh, couldn't wiggle his way out of it anymore, and a five-judge panel of the Appellate Division of the New York State Supreme Court disbarred him for unethical <laughs> and unprofessional conduct, including misappropriation of client funds, lying on a bar application, and pressuring a client to amend his will, because hmm. what he did was... He had uh, a client by the name of Louis Rosenstiel, that's not a Jewish last name at all, um, who was a multimillionaire from some, you know, industri industrial conglomerate, liquor company, apparently. This guy made his money in liquor. Um, in 1975, Cohn entered this guy's hospital room where he was dying in the hospital forced a pen into his hand, lifted it to the will, in an attempt to make himself and the uh, Rosenthal's granddaughter beneficiaries on the will. Whoa. What? Why? They ended up determining in court that the marks on the will were indecipherable and in no way a valid signature. <laughs> uh, and, oh, and, I'm, and I'm wondering... What year did he lie in his bar application? Yeah. <laughs> that, I mean, that could have been like a, a like a renewal for his license okay. to practice or something, you know. But still, <laughs> yeah, you wonder. I, considering considering what we know, that's the least of our concerns is him lying True. on a bar application. True. That's like that's like getting Al Capone for tax evasion. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah so yeah once he was once he was disbarred um and sent off into disgrace um so um he uh well actually he was disbarred um in 86 um it doesn't say when in 86 because he died August 2nd of 1986 so it had to have been before that I'm presuming well, I don't know why they disbar somebody who's dead um it, it could have been like jokes on you dudes I'm dying maybe <laughs> um but um this is yeah I'm not one to speculate I'm just saying what I just you know read in my research um but Cone died of AIDS Hmm. And the whole Army McCarthy thing and him going, trying to pull so many strings for his friend, doing air quotes here, mm -hmm. some people think that they were maybe more than friends and that's why he was doing so much work for just this one person. That's just speculation, mm. though. Subtlety, dude. Learn to speak it. Could be. Uh, if you asked 
Cone, though, he was diagnosed in 84. Um, and then he died in 86. Uh, but if you asked him, even though he was on like all of the drugs that they were, you know, trying and treating people with at the time, you know, AZT and all those things, mm-hmm. he insisted till the day he died that he was dying of liver cancer. Um, either way he died and immediately irs seized almost everything he had as they do yes Mm -hmm. so uh so yeah uh quite the character that mr cone yeah he has he's gone on to live on kind of an infamy um because some of the people that he worked with are still alive uh, both people he worked with and clients of his are still living. Um, there's been documentaries that have, have come out about him. The play um, Angels in America, if you're familiar with it, it's this huge, it's like a seven hour long play, but it it covers the life of, uh, it covers the lives of multiple people who um, were uh, in some way uh, part of the or affected by the AIDS crisis in the 80s essentially um, and he is one of the characters in that play um, and has been played by several people um, including um, uh, what's the clip that I have uh, Nathan Lane, yeah, Nathan Lane is one of the most people, recent people to to play that particular part. So, uh, so yeah, you know, be a lawyer and try to help forge <laughs> a client, dying client's name on wills. You know, you know, this and is why. This with is the why mafia, lawyer. I don't. This is why uh, lawyers have a bad reputation. Yeah. <laughs> Not well, just him, but, you know, one of the reasons. Yeah. Uh-huh. It doesn't help. It doesn't no. help the stereotype. <laughs> Even back in Shakespeare's day, they were bad. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, we're, we're going to go from a lawyer to a politician uh mm. <laughs> not from the same cloth yeah <laughs> they are yeah well this guy's <sighs> liked by slightly more people i think question mark uh, um <laughs> very again, big question mark <laughs> yeah yeah uh depends on who you ask uh one Peron. one Peron who was, uh, uh, among other things, uh, a army general in the Argentine army and politician um, who would go on to be president of Argentina three times. (laughs) Uh, So, and his wife actually, well, second wife, I did not know this, she was his second wife. Uh, we'll get to his second wife. Uh, maybe more well-known and probably more beloved than he was. Don't cry for me, Argentina. Yeah, when you have a musical made out of your life story, you know, you've probably got something. 
Yeah. Um, yeah, but uh, Juan Domingo Perón was born in Lobos Buenos Aires. Um, his great grandfather was a shoe merchant and his grandfather was a physician. Um, although even though his grandfather was supposed to be a fairly successful physician when he died, uh, he left his widow nearly destitute. Um, however, um, and uh, Peron's father moved them to a very rural uh, Lobos where he worked a life land with livestock. Um, and there he met uh, his wife who would go on to become, you know, Juan's mother. Um, Juan himself was uh, sent away to boarding school in 1904. Um, which the boarding school happened to be run by his paternal grandmother. Uh, so that helped, I'm sure. I'm sure he got a break on tuition there. Uh, <laughs> Remember, it's who you know. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, where he received a very strict Catholic upbringing. Uh, his father died in 1928. Uh, so, and he, in the meantime, uh, Juan entered the National Military College in 1911 at the age of 16, graduated in 1913. He didn't do so well academically, but apparently he was really great in sports, including boxing and fencing. Um, he began his military career in an infantry post um, and um, earned uh, instructor's credentials at the Superior World School. And in 1929, he was appointed to the Army General Staff Headquarters. Um, I can make sure I'm on the right page here. Uh, <laughs> so many notes. Uh, so yeah, that was 1929. So during that time for the next uh, 15-ish years, he really just lived a military life, um, you know, working his way up the ranks. Um, there was a coup in, (laughs) um, in, um, 1943, um, that was led by General Arturo Rawson, um, against the democratically elected President, uh, Ramon Castillo, um, and, uh, apparently the military opposed, um, the governor, uh, Rabustano Patron Costas, who was Castillo's handpicked successor. Um, so, and by then, uh, Paron was a colonel and therefore uh, was a significant, had a significant part in the coup. Um, he first assisted the Secretary of War General, um, and then um, who was, uh, yeah, as assistant to Secretary of War General Edemiro Farrell under the administration of General Pedro Ramirez. He later became the head of the then insignificant Department of Labor. Um, But it just so happened that January of 1944 in San Juan, there was a really bad earthquake, um, which ended up claiming over 10,000 lives and leveled like an entire city. Um, But Peron ended up taking that apparently insignificant Department of Labor and utilizing the resources um, to uh, 
do relief for the victims and you know all the stuff they have to do whenever there's a, a disaster like that um and that got him really really popular um also during this time he had married his first wife um who unfortunately died at the age of 36 from uterine cancer um so um so he was a widow widower um at this point and uh so you know just kind of focusing on the military career and slash political career because you know you leveraging the military and its resources helps if you have political aims like you do. Mm -hmm. um, so in 1946, he was elected to his first term as president of Argentina. Um, uh, when he was first elected, his, his stated to his two stated goals were social justice and economic independence. So um, during the first half of the 20th century, there had been a significant gap that had widened between the classes and Peron hoped to close it through an increase of wages and employment, making the nation more pluralistic and less reliant on foreign trade. And he was kind of successful. Um, so, you know, at, at first, <laughs> it also helped that during that time before he got, um, when he was working on the, um, Earthquake um, recovery is also when he met his second wife, um, because one of the things that he leveraged was um, celebrity, like endorsements and help with relief efforts. And uh, it just so helped, it happened that one of the celebrities that got involved was a woman named Ava Duarte. Um, so, uh, but she would go on to become his second wife, uh, and most everyone knows her, um, as Evita. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I was just going to say celebrity endorsements for, for political, uh, achievements. Hmm. Yeah. Never seen that before. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but I mean, at first it, it his ideas actually worked like Argentina saw, significant improvement um, in things like unemployment and wages and homelessness and things like that. Ava Evita had a lot to do with that, though, because, you know, for, I guess, kind of a, a similar comparison, she was the Diana to his Charles. And uh, people loved Evita. They loved her. <laughs> <laughs> and she loved them uh so uh so uh he you know and she was more than happy to leverage that to get her husband's uh agenda checked off um you know even even when he gets jailed as like a political prisoner for a while um the people were still like, Avita! You know. <laughs> Meanwhile, she's like, you locked up my husband. And they're like, sorry, we love you. You know. <laughs> <laughs> um, Don't change us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, so, yeah. Uh, the His first term started out pretty good. By the end, it wasn't as Sunshine and Roses, but it wasn't too bad. Um, it was still good enough to the point that he got he got elected for a second term uh, immediately after his first term, so 1952. Um, he was re-elected um, still by a margin of over 30%, which, you know, I don't know, Paul, you know, election numbers, but that sounds like a big margin to me. <laughs> so it, it, it typically is. And, you yeah. know, it, it's kind of funny that, you know, there's this whole thing like, oh, people, people didn't like him, but, you know, clearly they voted for him unless there were some shenanigans going on, but, you know, who knows? Yeah. Well, but, uh, between the first and second election, um, this, this second election cycle was the first to have uh, essentially a su women's suffrage, so women were allowed to vote. And I'm sure having a Vita probably that helped. Uh, it was also the a first... Vote, a vote for one is a vote for Evita. Yes, pretty much. I think mm -hmm. so. Um, it was also the first election in Argentina to be televised. Ah, uh, yes. Well, you know, we, we all saw what, what, how that worked out for, for Kennedy versus Nixon. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, even... even uh... People are very shallow, is yeah. what I'm saying. Yeah. Well, even... <laughs> um... What was it? Eisenhower that we talked about that because TV was, you know, mm -hmm. uh, you know, just then he was, you know, being started to use for for politics. So, um, so yeah, uh, so he began his second turn. Um, this time things not looking so hot for Argentina. Um, it didn't help that there was a severe drought, which you know. As president, he didn't have control over the weather, but still, uh, well, that drought. That led... Whatever, whatever <laughs> going is going bad, it gets blamed. It doesn't matter if it's a, yeah. a drought or anything else. If it's if it's something bad, it's 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 the president's fault. Yeah, yeah. because again, people are shallow. Yeah. Um. Yeah, yeah, there's a, yeah, so there's a drought, um, which led to a equivalent of 500 million U.S. dollars trade deficit. Oof. Oof. Oops. Um, so, um, and then kind of a big blow um, happened when, unfortunately, Avita died uh, on the 26th of July, 1952, also of cancer. Hmm. Um, so, which her whole thing is a whole other ball of wax. Just her story is, you know, <laughs> despite what they did with the, you know, the, uh, the musical, you know, the real life, you know, story of Evita. Don't go watch the movie with Madonna. Um, <laughs> uh like even after she died her story is just wild but she's not the focus of this which is kind of crazy uh <laughs> but it, it, it pro probably made better sense when he's writing the the the, the song is like 
Yeah. You know, with the beat and the lyrics, like, okay, one, sorry, sorry, Evita. Yep. You mm-hmm. died in fifty. You died in fifty-two. I need something for fifty-four. Yeah, you, uh, you got you. You got a musical about you. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, yeah, opposition really started to grow against Polaron after Evita died, and he really did not have her to be his bonus PR, I guess. Um, so they, did, they didn't love him anymore because he didn't have Eva. <laughs> Yeah. So on the 15th of April in 1953, a terrorist group, which has never been identified, uh, detonated two bombs um, in a public uh, rally, killing seven and injuring 95. Yikes. Um, Heron um, like rallied the crowd and told them that they should seek revenge, essentially. So they ended up the crowds that I guess you know weren't injured uh, made their way to again the terrorist group was never identified so what they did so they don't know exactly who did it so they just went to the like offices of the opposition of the people opposing Paron and burned those offices to the crowds oh my god <laughs> Well, that's one way to get rid of competition. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't matter if they were actually the ones responsible for the bombing. Uh, so they showed them. Uh, mm-hmm. Still, that did not help. Uh, and um, after uh, the expulsion of two Catholic priests that he believed were behind his recent image problems, um, I think Perón was lost after he lost Evita. Um, there was a declaration of the Sacred Constitutional Congregation that essentially, it was essentially a declaration from the Catholic Church excommunicating Perón. Uh, yeah. Uh, so the very next day, he called for a rally, because that's what you do. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, all he had this crowd of thousands of his supporters, you know, the people that still supported him in this plaza. You know, he was uh, probably up on a balcony in a building somewhere looking over, you know, this town square or whatever. Um, and while he was speaking before this crowd of thousands of people, some fighter jets came flying in and dropped some bombs onto the crowd. Oh, Ooh. killing 364 people. That escalated quickly. Yes. And the then the the, the, the description the the you know the apparently the jets were like you know, not waiting to see if they even hit their target and how successful they were. They just shot out of there like bats out of hell and ran to Uruguay where apparently they could seek political shelter. <laughs> how convenient. Like, bombs away, I'm off to Uruguay. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, that was... Uh, 
June of 55 and September of 55, um, there was a, uh, a nationalist Catholic group uh, led a revolt and uh, essentially it was their turn to do a coup. Perón got to be on this side of the coup thing um, and they took power three days later. Uh, Perón barely escaped fleeing on a gunboat uh, from Paraguay uh, and hightailed it up the river, was in uh, exile, living in various countries for the next 18 years, and then somehow managed to weasel his way back into Argentina and through some weird loopholes. Um, he was able to become president again for a third term in 1973 <laughs> with his third wife being his running mate. So when he died the following year in 74, she became president. <laughs> okay, hmm. then. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> There's some stuff, there's some other stuff in there, but yeah, 1954 was like, you know, the year before bombs flew, fell from the sky and killed almost 400 people. <laughs> oh my goodness. 1954, if you're Juan Peron, not the best time, but at least technically, you know, you're still in power for a little bit longer. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, enjoy that sofa. Yes. <laughs> I don't know. Does the presidential palace have a sofa, whatever they have in Argentina? I'm sure they do. My my brother was in Argentina for a couple of years, and although he didn't really ask, what are the sofas like? <laughs> yes, I should. I know he saw penguins because he went down to the very southern tip of it. <laughs> anyway. Uh, so moving on to something a bit more pleasant. Toscanini. Arturo Toscanini, to be specific. And I'm sorry, Nick, when you hear this, if I butcher all the Italian stuff, I'm so sorry. We never, we never pretended that we could pronounce this stuff. I just tried to do a bunch of you know Spanish. So, yeah. You did all right. Okay, thanks. <laughs> for, for what for what minimal Spanish I know, but yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, yes. oh, Italian... Arturo Toscanini, born March twenty fifth, eighteen sixty seven, um, in Parma, <laughs> like Parmesan. Uh... <laughs> mm. Love their cheese. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> I have no idea if that's actually related, but in my mind it is. <laughs> um, anyway. Yeah. He was, uh, he, he, he eventually becomes a conductor. Yeah. Uh, music conductor, not train conductor. Hey, something, something not, po not politics. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> Technically, no. Uh, <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah. So he was born in Parma. Um, when he was young, he won a scholarship to the local music conservatory where he studied the cello. Uh, apparently, the conservatory was not the best uh, as far as living conditions. It was very harsh, very strict. Uh, uh, 
for example, the menu at the conservatory consisted almost entirely of fish. Apparently years later on, Toscanini uh, absolutely refused to any, eat anything that came from the sea. I don't blame him. Yeah, I don't Although, either. you know, being being from Italy and, you know, most of you know, your country is three-fourths Surrounded or probably, by water. Yeah, surrounded <laughs> by water. So, uh, uh, try the veal. Yeah. <laughs> I guess. Chicken parmesan? Uh, veal parmesan. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Um, so. Yeah. Uh, so uh, he ended up joining uh, the orchestra of an opera company with which he toured South America in 1886. Um, while they were in Rio de Janeiro, um, the locally hired conductor apparently came to blows with the performers. Oh, no. Oh, geez. Yeah. To the point where the singers went on strike and forced the general manager to seek a substitute conductor. Two Opportunity of, calls. Yeah. Um, two of the two, I don't know who these guys are. I don't know if they were part of the group or what. They tried to help, couldn't get it to work. Um, so at this point, they're desperate because they're supposed to do like a show like that night um <laughs> so the opera singers suggest that their assistant chorus master toscanini should do it because he knows the whole opera from memory because he has an eidetic memory so even though he doesn't have a conducting experience he knows the whole thing backwards and forwards they eventually persuade him to do it he takes up the baton at 9 15 p.m leads the performance of the two and a half hour opera from completely from memory hey nice. he was Impressive. 19 oh my so, goodness some have greatness thrust upon them yes because wow yeah he ended up during conducting 18 operas uh finishing out the rest of the season each wow. one considered an absolute success so, uh, when returning to Italy, he tried to do both. He tried to be a conductor and a cellist. Um, and that would be hard, I would, I would think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He and he learned that quickly, um, <laughs> um, uh, especially considering so many people considered him just so skilled as a conductor that eventually he was just like okay well cello it's been fun hand me the baton let's do this thing um so maybe, maybe we'll we'll pick up the cello again as a hobby later. yeah but yeah yeah um so he worked uh mostly in italy for the next decade um where he conducted the world premieres of works like La Boheme and I can't pronounce this other one, Pagli Pagliacci, Pagliacci, sorry, Nick. Uh <laughs> I've had um, Nick on this for this portion. <laughs> yeah, really? Mm -hmm. um, yes. Yeah. 
1898, he was the principal conductor at La Scala, where he remained until 1908. Um, and they returned as a music director for there from 1921 to 1929. Um, but um, in that in between, in 1920, he brought the La Scala Orchestra to the U.S. for a concert tour, which is where he made his first recordings for the Victor Talking Machine Company. Which that <laughs> sounds so archaic now. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, but at the time it was state of the art. Yeah, it's RCA Victor is what it is now. That's what we would mm. mostly know it is. But at the time it was the Victor Talking Machine Company. <laughs> um, he also did work with the Metropolitan Opera in New York. Um, um, he was actually scheduled to return to Europe aboard the RMS Lusitania. In May of 1915, and if you know your your maritime history, mm -hmm. yeah, what happened yeah. to the to the Lusitania in May of 1915, y'all? By the yeah. sake, yep. yeah, sunk by a German U-boat. Yeah, mm -hmm. yep. sank in 15 minutes, or was it 18 minutes? Something there, like that. Yeah, there, there are yeah. there are yeah. YouTube videos that have animations showing the Lusitania sinking in real time. It's less than 20 minutes. Yeah. Yeah, but thankfully he cut his concert schedule short and went home a week early. Oh, good, good job, good job, Tuscanini. Yeah, yep. because, uh, that yeah. trip that would have probably not ended well. No, mm -hmm. yeah. I kind of want to make a Doctor Who joke and like the Doctor, like kind of get hint, give him. I don't know. Maybe, don't maybe you want to cancel. But maybe yeah. <laughs> Maybe you want to cancel those tickets. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Some 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 weird guy with a, you know, just like, hey, I heard your cat sick. Yeah. <laughs> or, or, or a lady by the name of Charlotte. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. I had the same problem with the dirigible. Uh, yeah. yeah. Skip mm -hmm. the boat. Yeah. <laughs> I can't I can't save all of the all of the talented musicians from mm -hmm. doing from taking wrong or taking bad trips <laughs> yeah uh -huh. um so yeah so he goes from italy to the u.s back to italy um at one point he tried to run for parliament in milan um but wasn't successful uh, <laughs> um and he actually was you know he was by 1922, he was just kind of over Italian politics as a whole. Um, even though Mussolini had branded him the greatest conductor in the world, um, but uh, Tuscanini, which, yeah, which isn't <laughs> quite getting getting complimented by by isn't quite like getting complimented by Hitler, but it's it's in oh, the same ballpark. <laughs> yeah, well, apparently yeah. Tuscanini refused to just do things like display Mussolini's photograph or conduct. Uh, the fascist anthem um, and apparently he told a friend quote if I were capable of killing a man I would kill Mussolini <laughs> dang wow yeah, he was not a good dude yeah <laughs> um, so yeah back and forth back and forth uh, eventually he goes back to the U.S. Um, again um, and ends up um conducting for the New York Philharmonic 
um, until 1936, where he resigned, returned back to Italy again. He spent a lot of time on boats. Um, <laughs> yeah. You imagine in the 20s and 30s, the only way you could get anywhere mm-hmm. was by a boat. If you want to go from Italy <laughs> to New yeah. York City, a long boat ride. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so no such they, thing they, as frequent flyer miles. No, <laughs> no, no. And and in the Depression, you know, in the 1930s, sailing on a boat was expensive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like you, like you, you just didn't do it. Like, hey, okay, kids, we're gonna go on a trip to Europe, and we're gonna sail on, we're gonna sail on, you know, whatever boat. Like, nah, because, uh, yeah, it was yeah. not cheap. Yeah. So, yeah, so at this point, he's back in Italy. He's considering retirement, which at this point, he probably could have deserved it. You know, he probably yeah. could have hung up yeah. the baton and be like, I did, you know, he did good. You know, he was considered pretty much everywhere to mm-hmm. be one of the greatest conductors of all time, even though he was, a, he, you know, I don't know the first thing about conducting. I can't read music. I can't carry a tune in a bucket. You know, I'm a shower and car singer, but I know I can't. I, I'm not in tune. I, yeah, you know. I've I've led music in church, but mostly it's just like waving my arm around. I really don't know why, like what makes a good conductor and why. You yeah, know. but yeah. Obvi- I mean, obviously, it's something really good and big and special. Otherwise, this this you know Tuscanini wouldn't be Tuscanini. Yes, <laughs> like, exactly. You know, what, what what makes yeah so i don't know that's just one thing i i I just do not understand even though i have like you know i can keep time with my hand that's about it (laughs) yep that's it (laughs) yeah yeah so but yeah he's supposed to he was supposed to be this fantastic conductor at the same time he was also known as a hard ass he was tough on his musicians um i will i will put a link in the show notes that there is a couple a couple of audio clips because you know video wasn't really a thing then but there are audio clips of him just berating players as you know they're rehearsing or whatever and it's not one of them one of them he's he goes off it is all in italian so i have no idea what he's saying but i don't need to speak italian or understand italian to know this guy is pissed off uh, mm. And then there's another one here where he bounces between Italian and English. And at one point he accuses, he was specifically yelling at the double bases, I think, um, <laughs> and accuses them of having their ears on their feet. You have no ears, no eyes. You, 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 you. you. The first base. You are always late. You have no ears, no eyes, nothing at all. Corpo d'un Dio Santissimo. But what do you believe to be? You. God? No. Testadasino. You are not a musician, you are not a ear. Ears, you are not ears, you, you. And no eyes. Look at me. And follow me. Like, if Gordon Ramsay was a conductor, it's this guy. <laughs> uh, you know, if, if with, my ex- with, with my experience with musicians and, and things like that, 
if I if I had to pick the sort of person, the, the sort of people I want to hang around with, I wouldn't want to hang around musicians because they are hard asses. Theater people, however, they're goofballs, and I love them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, but yeah, mu- musicians, any you know, p- people who are like super professional, super dedicated super all of that it's like okay i'm gonna go over here now you know play the beautiful music i will come and enjoy it but while you're practicing while you're getting ready for it you are i can't be around you sorry yeah (laughs) but yeah that 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 tallies from uh, what i know of 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 musicians and especially like you know classical musicians thing of things like yeah you know opera symphony that that sort of thing i did three years of marching band but i was not a musician i was in the color guard but i can vividly recall several times where our conductors would go off on the band you know somebody in the band for doing something (laughs) yeah yeah not to their liking so yeah uh uh but apparently, even with that reputation, even with even, there's receipts, there's receipts of of his of his uh, you know uh, Italian tirades. Uh, it did not turn people off because while he's considering retiring, uh, David Sarnoff, uh, president of the Radio Corporation of America (RCA), um, back in New York was proposed in creating a symphony orchestra for radio concerts um, and wanted Toscanini to conduct it. Uh, Toscanini didn't want to, but uh, uh, Sarnoff got one of Toscanini's friends to come and convince him to do it. Uh, So he ended up accepting and uh, so he returned to the U.S. and conducted his first broadcast concert with what was then known as the NBC Symphony Orchestra on Christmas 1937 in NBC Studios 8H in Rockefeller Center. Uh, he would um, he would uh, continue co- to conduct. Uh, the NBC Symphony Orchestra until uh, 1954, um, although they did move in 1950 um, when 8H was converted into a TV studio, uh, which if that sounds familiar, Studio 8H has been the home of Saturday Night Live since 1975. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and the symphony was moved to Carnegie Hall. So, you know, it's not like they got sent to a broom closet or something. Like, oh, sorry, you have to leave Rockefeller Center. Where are we going? Uh, Carnegie Hall. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, he conducted the, or that orchestra from 37 until 54. Um, his final broadcast performance was an all Wagner program that took place on April 4th, 1954 in Carnegie Hall. And then in June 54, he participated in his final RCA Victor recording session uh, and finally stepped down and finally properly retired at the age of 87. Dang. Mm-hmm. You're, you're retiring for, for real? For real this time? Seriously? Yes. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. He would, ed- he would do some evaluations and editing, mostly of, of uh, his own performances. <laughs> <laughs> for possible release on records <laughs> um but yeah he he 
he pretty much spent his retirement watching boxing and wrestling matches as well as TV. Huh. Uh, like, and I'm done with the music. Let's watch some boxing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, and then he uh, eventually died January 16th, 1957, after suffering a stroke um, in uh, living in the Bronx in New York. Um, but his body was returned to Italy, and he is now um, entombed in the Cimitero Monumentale in Milan. Oh, and in his will, he left his baton to his protege. Oh, kind of adorable. Yeah. Uh, so, so that is Toscanini. Good dude. Yes. If a little rough on his on his musicians, but you know, greatness yeah. didn't come from being coddled, I suppose. Yep. Yeah. Um, so this next one is interesting because I didn't really find a whole lot text-wise that's not just a bunch of scientific mumbo yeah. jumbo. Because <laughs> we're talking about Dacron, Dacron, which is really just a brand name. For a type of polyester. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so this is where the seventies started. Yes, <laughs> in many ways, <laughs> essentially. So I am not even going to try to pronounce its proper, like, scientific name: polyethylene. Yeah. Blah 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 blah. It's it mostly is, it's known on- as either PET or PEAT. Yes, uh, by most people, but it is a type of thermoplastic polymer resin in the polyester family because polyester actually is not one specific material it's actually an umbrella term for a number of materials um that are considered polyester uh (laughs) so um most of the but it it was it came out of the post war effort uh you know once we were able to like get back into proper manufacturing and more rationing things you know like women could wear nylon stockings again if they wanted uh and things like that and you know the post-world war ii boom people moving out into the suburbs um that sort of thing required technological innovation and dacron as we know it here in the u.s is the most commonly used plastic essentially for things like soda bottles plastic soda bottles and those plastic clamshell containers that hold like your strawberries your blueberries the grocery store and things like that so when you have people that are living out in the suburbs have to drive to the grocery store pack all their stuff in the car and then take it home and it needs to keep mm-hmm. yep you end up developing things like Dacron. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and it's still used today. I mean, it's uh, like a majority of the world's pet, use the you know, technical term pet production, for is for synthetic fibers, uh, about ex- more than 60%, with bottle production accounting for about 30% of global command. Because we drink a lot of bottled crap plastic bottled crap which we really need to stop yeah um, yeah because in 2016 it was estimated 56 
million tons of pet are produced each year. Um, and while most, most thermoplastics can, in principle, be recycled, the nice thing about PET is it is actually one of the best for recycling. We have that, that going for us at least um, because the high value of the resin in it and uh, the fact that it's almost exclusively used for water and soft drink bottles, which are really easy to recycle. <laughs> Mm -hmm. As long as people bother to separate them for recycling. Mm -hmm. Yep. That's the biggest thing. Um, that being said, Dacron was not used and ha is not used just for um, bottles, although that's a large bit. And even now, um, the, the bottles that are getting recycled are being used for things like filler and like pillows. Finding the perfect pillow can be elusive, like a thing of dreams. We all know how it works. The better the fibre filling inside, the better you sleep at night. We also want to know that all that fluff is more than just comfortable. It's made from technology that cares. This is where Dacron Eco2 comes in. Eco2 Fibre Fill combines innovative and sustainable manufacturing processes. We're talking about using less CO2, land and less water to make the pillow fluff that helps you sleep so beautifully. Dacron Eco2 Journey starts closer to home than you might think. It starts with you. When you recycle plastic bottles, you actually supply the raw material for our fibres. We can turn 20 bottles into a 600 gram pillow. In a single year, one pillow program alone saves about 85 million bottles from the landfill and converts them into Eco2 fibre. More than that, we care about how we get this stuff. We monitor and trace the origin of the bottles in each fibre bale, so we can verify that we've collected our bottles with the highest ethical standards, including being sure no children were involved in collection of bottle waste. Eco2 has been recognised and rewarded by important international ecological labels. You can read all about it in our regular Life Cycle Analysis Report. So sleep easy and wake refreshed, knowing that you help to care for our planet and future generations when you found that perfect pillow. Um, and things like that. But yeah, in, even back in the 50s, but yes, definitely in the 70s, it was even, I found some old vintage advertisements on YouTube. One from the 50s advertising for uh, Dacron in men's suits because it helps hold its shape remember what daycron did for your summer suits yeah now daycron does it for fall suits too yeah yes daycron improves the fall suit adds new neatness to wool to look neat in the fall look for daycron on the label because daycron is a man's best friend a man looks so smart in suits that are able to stay wrinkle-free and neat. In winter cold and winter sleet, a man's at his best when he looks well-pressed, wearing suits that have Dacron in the blend. And the colors and styling will sure keep him smiling. Dacron is a man's best friend. Your favorite store has new fall suits of Dacron with wool. The improved suits that stay pressed and wrinkle-free. Thanks to Daycron. My new part. 
and then also uh, Levi's, I think maybe uh, in the seventies, Levi's with Dacron in them. <laughs> so, because you don't want to iron your Levi's. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but that was just it was it was one of those materials that came out of the the post war new materials uh most uh the biggest company to do that was dupont um you know they helped develop things like dacron mylar lycra um you know they still use dacron now like i said for things like the recycled dacron for things like filler and like pillows and things like that um it's also used in like the uh, material used for like sails for ships. Um, so, yeah. Yay, DuPont and your space age developments. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Well, at the time, it, it seemed like space age is like, dude, I can like buy a box of strawberries and get them to my house out in, in, the, in the sticks and they'll still be good. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there you go. Yeah. Keep your strawberries fresh and look fly in your polyester pants. As you <laughs> yes. go to Studio 54. Uh, uh-huh. all, those, all those old school game shows for, uh, that are on Game Show Network. I don't know whether they still do that. I just always remember watching like Match Game and yeah. and um, Family Feud and the and the other wearing those bell bottom suits made out of polyester. Oh, and yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, I am all days. for recycled polyester, you know, reused polyester fibers in my pillows. Just don't ask me to wear it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, granted, it has helped, you know, go to any thrift store, thrift store or vintage shop, and you can find plenty of clothes from the 70s because it's, you know, unlike your like wool and stuff, which can get eaten by moths, all the poly- polyester stuff is held up. So, you know, if you want, you know, a good Halloween costume. You can thank yep. polyester for that, but oh my god, that stuff does not breathe. Uh, <laughs> I wore some polyester back in my day, and oh my god, how I didn't you know suffocate is beyond me. Uh, <laughs> Very lucky, I guess. I guess. Uh, so all right, moving on to let's talk about war. With Dien Bien Phu Falls. Falls. And I don't mean falls like waterfalls. Um, (laughs) Because the way it comes out of Billy Joel's mouth, it almost could. Uh, (laughs) I think when I was younger, I thought it was like kind of like a falls in like that kind of area. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. This is not the world famous Jungle Cruise. Sorry, this is not Schweitzer Falls. No. Um, Named after that scientist, Dr. Albert Falls. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) All you Disney folks just got that joke. Uh, No, the Battle of Dien Bien Phu, uh, which took place in Vietnam, um, was the big final confrontation between the not the whole vietnamese vietnamese but the revolutionaries the the holdouts the the viet minh is what they called themselves against the french of all people 
um, because um, in the post-World War II era, that area of the world, Vietnam, um, parts of China, um, I forget what else, uh, Laos, um, were considered very strategic land to be in control of. And the, when the Japanese surrendered at the end of World War II, they left. Because <laughs> uh, you remember, you know, the, the part of the, you know, we were, the Japanese, this part of the world was kind of involved in World War II conflict because, you know, the Pacific theater and all that. Um, but so the Japanese left and the French were like, yeah, we're sticking around. Um, and the Vietnamese were like, um, but we'd like to be independent, please, sirs. Yeah. Merci. Yeah. Uku. Um, and um, they, they even like declared themselves like, you know, they gave them, you know, uh was it um oh crap what am i trying to think of uh the capital the vietnam the i can't think of the name mm -hmm. i'm having a brain fart it's not, it's not ho chi Minh. no that's the that's the guy <laughs> yeah well there there, there is a, there is a city but city yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> But no, in this case, uh, yeah, but anyway, so they're even like, no, we got a capital and everything, you know, we, we want to be our own people. And the French were like, no, you can be your own people, but we're still going to be in charge. You know, we're, we're still going to own you. And uh, the, the, the Vietnamese were like, yeah, no, that ain't going to fly. And the French were like, uh, make us. And they're like, okay. Uh, so we ended up with the first Indochina war. <laughs> um, and uh, the thing is, the French, at least the people in charge of this particular confrontation, not the smartest croissants in the bunch. Um, I will refrain from making a French joke. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not the fresh, not the freshest baguette in the bakery. Uh, oh gosh. Yeah. Yeah. A, a lot of these, a lot of these like post-war conflicts, you know, kind of fall under the umbrella of, you know, you know, and you know, war against communism type things, which this one didn't like directly fall under that. But there were some elements that were starting to sprout out from that, and it's just—it's uh, a mm -hmm. mess. I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll yeah. just—I'll just put it that way. It was mm -hmm. a mess. Uh, yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So here's the thing: the French come in, and the guy in charge was all like, "Okay, well, there's this one specific village, Dien Bien Phu, that we think." is the ideal place for us to set up for, you know, our 
conflict here. You know, there's a there's a uh, we're gonna oh, we're gonna Eric, throw down. Yeah, this is where we're gonna mm-hmm. throw down. You know, uh, we could you know we're gonna like you know there's an airstrip here that we can get back up and running, so we can use you know air support to drop off supplies, that sort of thing. Um, we can cut off their supply lines leading going into Laos and uh you know we'll just we'll just have the the Viet Minh by the tail uh you know there's like all these mountains and stuff around us you know what are they gonna do they don't have like anti-aircraft capabilities you know they got like swamps and stuff and you don't think they know those swamps genius Exactly. Mm-hmm. And I wish I could think of that. There was a podcast I listened to in the last couple of weeks that was talking about some other military conflict where one side grossly underestimated the other because they because the home team had home field advantage because they knew the turf. And mm-hmm. this is exactly what happened here. Well, mm-hmm. I, I don't know if this is the one you're, I don't know if this is specifically what you're thinking of, but a similar thing happened during the American Revolution, as, you know, the, the, the British were just kind of like, hey, we're going to march around because this is what's worked in the past, and and the, the, the American colonists are just like, haha, F you, and just, you know, <laughs> shot at him from the bushes. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it was that. It, it may not be. It, it, it may. It may. It may I'm have sure, not. It may not yeah. have been. But the, it, I'm sure this is something that's happened several yes. times in, in the history of armed yeah. conflict. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. If, I don't remember if it was a podcast or something I watched on like Curiosity Stream or something mm-hmm. I watched on YouTube. I don't yeah, remember. It's, it's it's not an uncommon thing thing to happen. Yeah. In, but especially when you have you know one one outside group saying. Hey, this is what this is how we do things, and we're awesome for that. And the mm-hmm. other team is like, uh, "We don't want you around, and we'll we'll use any tactic to uh, to kick you out." So, mm-hmm. you know, it, that, that that's not an incentive for me to fight fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. So, um, so yeah, like <laughs> it it ended up being like this fifty five day conflict um just in this in this area about around Dien Bien Phu uh like the first French leader once he realized that they had royally screwed up ended up committing suicide with a grenade uh, Ooh, <laughs> uh so then they like this I guess presumably his second in command like stepped up and he's like okay let's do this thing and then you know again he, I guess he was the one that ended up having to wave the white flag. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the, the, Viet, the Viet Minh essentially had home court advantage and they knew this terrain and they had anti-aircraft guns. It's just the French didn't know that. On a, although from one documentary I watched or one video I watched, it wasn't necessarily that the Viet Minh had anti-aircraft. It's they got anti-aircraft guns from the Soviets. Uh, <laughs> yeah remember uh, that whole communism thing and the soviets yeah. were kind of being like hey we want as much territory as we can gather oh yeah. look you're 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 kind of in a pickle here here let's help you guys out and yeah. you know maybe maybe you'll uh you'll be our our, our friendly communist uh buddies here really yeah. friends so, so what they did so what they did is so that the, the french are all set up you know, in this area, because they have this airstrip, 
that they think is just going to be so helpful because they're like, our planes could just come flying in, you know, drop some supplies, drop some more ammo, that sort of thing. And we're just going to be coached, you know, we're just going to be, you know, cozy, you know, as pigs and slop right here. And what the Viet Minh did is they took all the, the anti-aircraft guns and other stuff that they had, and even things like sticks with poison on the end, and but especially the anti-aircraft guns, is they would disassemble them into smaller pieces because you know these things are huge. Mm-hmm. And in groups to go up the backside of these mountains that surround this airstrip. So they're on the backside. The French are on the front side down in like kind of this valley thing. And under nightfall, they would take these guns in pieces up the mountains, reassemble them, and then bury them in the dirt just enough that they could still use them, but so they're not visible necessarily by the naked eye. French estimates of Viet Minh capability were based in part on another miscalculation, the belief that each man could carry 40 pounds of rice to sustain him in battle. The Viet Minh, using bicycles as the French had used taxicabs in World War I, brought in 600 pounds per man, enough to stay 15 times longer at the front than the French had calculated. Where trucks could go no farther, men took over. Heavy artillery was manhandled up the jagged mountain flanks inch by painful inch. This too, the French did not believe could be done. So then when the French supply planes would come in, thinking they're just going to be dropping off some stuff, boom! No supplies for you, Frenchie, sorry. So the poor French were essentially just fish in a barrel mm-hmm. in this in mm-hmm. this and at one point like they had they requested and got like a five hour like reprieve or something so that they could take care of the, all the dead bodies oh gosh france you're just in over your head here mm-hmm. yeah you're you're, yep. you're not you're not england just just stop yeah stop yeah <laughs> yeah so yeah, so this thing it went on for like 55 days. It was the 13th of March to the 7th of May in 1954. Yeah, we're 54 here. Um, and, uh, you know, eventually the French were like, we give up, you know. Um, and um, not, uh, not long after that, the Geneva Accords were signed. Uh, France agreed to remove its forces from all colonies in French, in French Indochina. Um, but in their agreement to leave, they wanted the stipulation that Vietnam should be div- temporarily divided at the 17th parallel with the control of the North going to Ho Chi Minh, who had been the leader this entire time. Like the, again, I'll have it linked in the show notes um, where uh, I think it's this, this the news program from the 60s, from like the mid 60s, Walter Cronkite hosted. Um, that's where he was. Um, and there is this guy who is a reporter, I think, that ended up talking to, interviewing Ho, uh, Ho Chi Minh uh, before this conflict. It asked him, you know, uh, you know, 
would you go to war? You know, is do you think war is necessary? And he was like, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely, positively. He said, he's like, we got swamps <laughs> that, that will eat up their tanks. <laughs> so, so Ho Chi Minh was all like, absolutely. He's all for it. Um, but he wanted control of the entire country. But the French were like, no, we don't want this guy in charge of the entire country. Break it up. He can have the top half. And the bottom half can go to this other leader. And then they've been North and South Korea ever since, or Vietnam ever since, uh, essentially. <laughs> so, um, and, uh, you know, several years, uh, what, a decade later, the U.S. would go on to try to do something similar and realize that we also underestimated the Vietnamese. Mm, like, did we not yeah. learn anything from yeah, the French? You remember, not. you remember how you know there was all those comparisons with the helicopters flying off the embassies and uh, you know, yeah, that that kind of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Just like oh yeah. Anyway, but um, well, okay. So, so it, I mean, Vietnam is it, it has been since reunited, yeah. um, more is or less. Really, though. Well, geographic. So, so, so we've got it. We've got technically to a, geographically. Yes, politically. So, so there's not really a South Vietnam and a North Vietnam, but uh, for all you know, officially now, whether or not that is in practice, eh. But uh, yeah. yeah, so so here's what it so says that, on so, paper so, and what's actually happening. Yes, yes. <laughs> so 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 don't so you know when we say you know they've been divided ever since. In a sense, they really they really have. It yeah. just just if you look up you know if you if you look it up in a, in an atlas or an encyclopedia or something, it will just say Vietnam, the yeah. country, no north and south. Yeah. So there 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 is a there is a distinction there. Yeah. But it still took a while. Like when I think yes. temporary, well, it's 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 not like years yeah. and years and years. Uh, although although you know, I, I still think like we still have North Korea and South Korea, so yeah, that they're they're still officially divided. Yeah, mm-hmm. which we've had that discussion in a previous episode too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, technically they're still at war. Mm-hmm. On yeah. On paper, uh, still at yeah, mm-hmm. and North Korea technically is still living in 1955. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So again, <laughs> what it says on paper and what's actually happening don't always match. Anyway, mm-hmm. no. Uh, anyway, so we'll be talking about Vietnam again because Ho Chi Minh mm-hmm. gets a, a shout out later oh, <laughs> I hate that guy anyway <laughs> but we're not there yet so yeah, to no. wrap up uh, good old 1954 yes. let's end on a high note and yes. Rachel if you if you feel like if you feel like it when you're editing I think we should I think we should close out on this yes because <laughs> it's it's uh, the song rock around the clock rock around the clock mm-hmm. one two Mm-hmm. Rock, 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 r
it's it's a classic it's a yes. Yes. you know yes. I, I think i think like um like when i was in Recorded elementary school by bill haley and his comments in 1954 for decca records mm-hmm. yes we uh i think when i was in in elementary school and we would do like you know gym class or whatever we would this was it this song was in the rotation of music we would we would mm-hmm. have going on or you know we had our, our skating nights and they'd play music and we'd go roller skate around the gym and it was you know it's it's just one of those it's like you you, you know it even if you don't remember ever learning it mm-hmm. but it's been in movies and it's been in yeah commercials yeah, it, and yeah whatever. it actually was it wasn't a flop but it wasn't a huge hit either when it was released because it was actually the b-side yes on the record um because the a side was actually uh a song called Thir- 13 women and one man something like that uh <laughs> 13 I, women I... and only one man in town that was going to be the a side of the single <laughs> um and really i mean this song has had been kind of it was written in 53 um and actually as early as late 52 um but that the original version is doesn't really resemble what the the final result was uh by by bill haley um but um uh, it was actually offered to haley in 53 um, and actually, they performed it on stage before they ever recorded it. Um, but uh, and they did take it to the recording studio, according to Bill Haley. He took the sheet music to the recording studio at least twice with um, their producer, Bill Miller or Dave Miller, ripping up the music each time. Because wow. <laughs> he just he hated it. He absolutely <laughs> hated it. Um, but they eventually were able to, they left that record label and went to DECA and, um, they, um, re- were able to record it, um, uh, you know, on <laughs> this go round. Um, and, um, so, uh, but it really took off actually in, um 56 i think when it was used in blackboard jungle the movie blackboard jungle mm-hmm. um so that's when it kind of really took off but a lot of people consider it one of like the first big mainstream like rock and roll mm-hmm. hits and really brought what we would consider rock and roll at least in the 50s um to you know the the quote-unquote rebellious youth of the 50s <laughs> mm-hmm. hey it, rebellion's gotta start somewhere y'all yep yeah <laughs> you gotta lift yourself when you hear rock and roll music well yes i i would say that john that um it makes me uh feel sort of happy and i enjoy playing it very much uh it's uh an exhilarating type music i would say we had no no idea that Bill Haley's Comets was going to be a worldwide uh, famous band. 
politics and war and whatever Dacron is. <laughs> yeah. You just got you just got, you know, the the kids in the fifties, you know, just uh you know going to their your school dancers or going to the you know it's dancing at you know at the mm-hmm. sock hop or you know hanging mm-hmm. out at the, the malt shop. shop or whatever, you know, and yeah, the girls in their uh, skirts with their, you know, with their saddle shoes and little bobby socks, you know, jumping and jiving and, sw- you know, getting lifted up in the air and twirling around and, you know, guys with their slick back hair, put the little curl in the front like Bill Hill, Bill Hill he had. <laughs> mm-hmm. He did that before Elvis. <laughs> yeah. So. All righty. So that's that's 1954 and our we didn't start the fire deep dive. Yes. We're getting we're getting through it yep. well, slowly, slowly but surely. Next time, whenever that is. <laughs> Next time we tackle this one, there's some. 1955 will be a much better year. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I, I'm looking at this. I'm like, I mean, there's a couple of celebrity deaths. Yeah, but then the rest yeah. of it is like. Yep, 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 yep. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it, uh, you know, spoiler alert, 1955 is a big year for, for Disney. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. in, you know, in general, and not just for the obvious. But anyway, we'll yep. get to yeah. that when we get to that. So, yep. if uh, any of our listeners want to want to do their armchair historian bit and uh, chime in on any of the topics covered here today, or any of our news uh, bits that we talked about at the beginning, uh, you can email us some feedback. Our email address is fiveishfangirls at gmail.com. Also, please visit our website, which is thefiveishfangirls.com to find links to our social media and YouTube and, and ways all to support. the notes in the show notes. And the notes, the show notes, check all that out. Uh, if, if you're not interested in the, in the, in the history stuff, I put up the YouTube video of, um, of of gaming historian talking about the Super yeah. Mario Brothers movie. And most of the so, stuff in the show notes is videos on YouTube. Yeah, so well, you're you not go. gonna have to like sit and like read like a history book or something. So. Yeah. Right. So you know, but there's there's a little there's a little something for everyone. Uh if you know. Ho- hopefully hopefully we've uh, kept you entertained through this through this journey through recent history recent-ish history but um as always we we thank our listeners our supporters and everybody for for anything at all that you've contributed to this podcast journey i suppose and uh you know whether you're just listening and and uh liking or whatever it is you do we we're we're grateful thank you and Mm -hmm. we'll be back next week with a fun episode i can't remember what the topic is now my brain's fried. <laughs> spoilers. Um, spoilers, <laughs> sweetie. Let's just say there's a big, speaking of the house of mouse, there's kind of a big deal happening on Friday. Let's just say. So, yeah. mm-hmm. so tune in for that mm-hmm. or, you know, download us wherever you download your podcast. Mm-hmm. So peace out, everybody. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> So with that, we shall sign off for this week. This is Brittany Main saying goodnight. This is Chrissy saying goodnight from Salt Lake City. This is Holly from Wisconsin saying good evening. And this is Rachel in Indianapolis, Indiana. Boom, 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 I can't sing. <laughs> I started summing happy days. Jeez. Yes. yes. It's connected. It is. It's all. Bill Haley, play us out. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> One, two, three o'clock, four o'clock, rock. Five, six, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, rock. Nine, ten, eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock, rock. We're going to rock around the clock tonight. What is that right? So join me home. We'll have some fun when the clock strikes. You have been listening to the Five-ish Fangirls podcast. You can find more episodes and information at thefiveishfangirls.com. Any and all books, movies, games, and any other forms of media mentioned are owned and operated by the respective copyright holders. No copyright infringement is intended or implied. If you wish to support the show, the easiest way is to leave us a rating and review. More ratings and reviews will make it easier for others to find the show. If you wish to support us monetarily, you can do so at patreon.com slash fiveishfangirlspodcast. All money goes towards fees and equipment to keep the show going. 
For official Five-ish Fangirls merchandise, visit redbubble.com slash people slash Five-ish Fangirls. We love hearing from our listeners and encourage feedback. You can email us at fiveishfangirls at gmail.com. You can also like and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash fiveishfangirls. Thank you so much for listening and may the squee be with you.